with that, let's, let's pray. Uh, again, we're in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, but I'm going to back up and read a longer section so we can get the context and probably a way for me to stall or to give context to this more difficult section. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you uh, for this time that we have to gather here to worship you through our, through our fellowship with one another, through our singing to you, uh, through our time of, of, of prayer and just asking your blessing upon us. Lord, we ask that you would, as we, as we shift and we, um, turn our attention to the, to the teaching, to the scriptures, as we've been working through 1 John, uh, this little letter is powerful and it causes us to really think and to grapple with things that are difficult. And so, Father, we ask that your spirit would give illumination to the meaning of this passage, that you would help us to understand what was said in the original context, what the issues were that were happening. And Father, show us uh, the, the principles from this text that, that go beyond uh, the immediate setting, that, that meet us here where we find ourselves in 2022, uh, walking with you in the midst of a culture that is against you. And so, Father, we pray that you would use this time to convict us, to guide us, to lead us. Lord, help us uh, to grow in our relationship with you. May we become more and more dependent upon Christ, and um, we just need you, Lord. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen. All right, so I think I want to back all the way up to chapter 2 in verse 26. Because no verse is given in a, like in isolation. It's given in a greater context. And I think we have to go back to uh, verse 26, which was last week's passage to read through and then to enter into today's text to see sort of the, the, the bigger issue of what's happening here. And so we begin in verse 26. First John chapter 2, verse 26. These things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Key thought in today's passage, backdrop. There are individuals who are trying to deceive them. As for you, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, i.e., those that were deceiving them. But as, for his, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children... Abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. 
No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And Father, we do thank you uh, for your word. We ask that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. And all of the people said, yikes. <laughs> like, this is like a really difficult section because if you're paying attention through First John, we are immediately confronted with an issue concerning sin because there's two choices. In today's passage, First John 3, 8, we see that the one who sins is of the devil. Okay, that's choice number one. That's not a good choice. Uh, for I'm assuming that most of us don't want to be in that category. But then we're confronted with 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, that basically says that if you say that you have no sin, the truth is not in you, and you're a liar. Well, I don't like either one of those options. And, and so there's either like a conflict within the text, or John is using these two issues in a different way, and we're just misunderstanding. And, and that's what I think is sort of happening, that, that in the English, in our understanding, we're understanding these two statements that in the English seem like sort of like absolute statements that are in conflict with one, with one another that uh, sort of put some tension there. I think when we put it into a, a right understanding with the language, hopefully I can straighten this out for us so that we have some understanding. Uh, it's difficult. Uh, and I think that John writes in a way that intentionally makes it difficult for us because I think it was last week that I said there's, there's two great dangers. One danger is um, like one danger is to assure a non-Christian of the assurance of their salvation. And we live in a culture that wants to assure everybody of their salvation. Uh, all you have to do is to experience somebody who dies, and our natural reaction is what? They're in a better place. Biblically speaking, that's not very theologically accurate. Um, just because you die doesn't mean you're in a better place. Um, and I do think that on the other side of the coin, that Satan also desires for the person who is secure in their faith that... Um, that they lack that assurance and they doubt and they, they live in a, in a place where they're never, they never know if they're right with God. And so John is sort of dealing with these two things throughout this, this, this letter. And I think on both sort of extremes, uh, a, a lack of assurance for the person who is saved, like what you feel there, and the person who isn't saved that's being brought to security, sort of the resolution to this is, is bringing them to the cross because our assurance really ultimately is found in Christ alone. Amen? Like that, that's, that's where we have peace. And so if you're a Christian and you begin to wander away from the cross and you begin to sort of live up in your life in the flesh, 
There's not really assurance there. And the resolution to this is to be confronted by the cross in Jesus' holiness and to bring you to your knees and to come back and to get right with him. And if you think that you're okay, but you're not really okay, what you need is to be sort of confronted by your sin, uh, showing you the weight of the burden of your sin and how much trouble you actually are uh, apart from Christ in your sin and ultimately bringing you to the cross. And so I think that the key to understanding today's passage is in verse 7 of chapter 3. And it says, little children, make sure no one deceives you concerning sin. And so this is the, the, the greater context is John is writing this church. This church was being confronted doctrinally by those that were false teachers. And they were feeding them information that basically dealt with the flesh, the body, how they lived their life. They were, they were Gnostics, which taught Gnosticism. And so the idea was is that the spirit is totally separated with the flesh, and the flesh is unholy, and there's nothing that you can do uh, to live a holy life. And so there's no purpose to try to live according uh, to the way of God. So just sort of live it out in your own life and to know that there's sort of like this, this major sort of firewall between these two things so your flesh can't harm your spirit. And John is coming in and saying that's absolutely not true. Like how you live your life and the way you conduct yourselves, it matters to God. And so he's trying to straighten out uh, this thinking. And I do think that while they're going through the, that then, I do think that the modern church is facing the same problems. We live in a culture where, where the, the media and the pressure of society is so much against the things of the Bible, and they're, they're bombarding us in such a way that the minds of Christians are being sort of won over with sort of delicate subjects. Things that the Bible says, this is sin. Well, in our culture, we say, oh, the Bible's really old. And if, if you could modernize the Bible, God would change his opinion based on things that are happening in 2022, what's right and what's wrong. And so we can sort of just make that assumption and live that way. So if you're living your life in sin, that's okay. Um, God doesn't really care. He just loves you, which God does love you. Like most counterfeit things look really good. And so the aim of today's passage that I think that the Apostle John wants us to get in our minds is that we as followers of Christ would think correctly, that we would understand what God wants us to know, that we would think correctly about our, our, our own sin and how God feels about sin. As you follow the flow of this passage, there are, are, are two key words. The first word is sin. So if you're somebody who uh, mark, marks up your Bible or highlights your Bible, you could mark up sin. And you'll see that a bunch of times. I think it's like 10 times it's in today's passage. And then the other, uh, the other word is righteousness. And I can't take this illustration too far because I am not a musical person. I always feel really bad for sitting in that seat right in front of Don. So Don's like not only got to lead us, but he has to filter out me and uh, trying to take us out in the, the wrong direction. I've made good friends with the Rouses, and I like their singing style. When they sing Happy Birthday, you don't sing it together. Everybody sings in their own chosen key and their own chosen time, and it's beautiful. It's like the most epic way to sing. And so that's how I'm singing down here, and poor Don has to like lead along the way uh, in spite of me. 
And so I don't want to take a musical illustration, but I, I saw a, mil- a musical illustration concerning this passage, and it was kind of like there's a sheet of music. And the old sheet of music is the, the sin song. And we, apart from Christ, we lived our lives according to that sheet of music. Then when you entered, you find yourself meeting Christ, you give your life to Christ, you become a Christian, then you're given this new sheet of music. And the new sheet of music is the song of righteousness. And so that's the song that we're supposed to be singing. That's as far as I can take it, because I don't know about notes and tone and rhythm and all of that other stuff. But I kind of get the idea of the picture. I'm supposed to be on this new sheet of music, but the habits that I have and my desires are so much of the old sheet of music. So I could be, I could be on this new sheet of music, really trying to sing along, but I'll throw a note and it's like the old sheet of music. Or I could actually be on the old sheet of music trying to pretend that I'm living off the new sheet of music. And I think that this is what we're dealing with today. So we get to verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So verses 4 through 6, these are sort of truths that John is going to sort of put before us. He's confronting teaching that the church is being exposed to by the Gnostics. The Gnostics are saying one thing and he's saying, you know what, on the, the other hand of the, on the other hand, the reality is this. So he says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. So you might have a translation that doesn't have practices in there. That's a translation that they've They've inserted this word to help make sense of of the Greek tense, this present active indicative, which is this sort of like ongoing action. And it sort of is painting the picture. This isn't like you have a person who's walking really good and then they trip, they stumble, they say a bad word, or there's, there's a lapse in how they're living their life, which we, this side of heaven, will all struggle with sin. We will all have these problems. But there's a, there's a difference uh, for somebody who's just embracing sin. And so the truth that is say, stated here is the individual who is practicing sin, what they're practicing is lawlessness. A fancy theological word for this is antinomianism, which is, means like oh, without law, apart from law, that God doesn't care how we live our lives. You don't have to uh, live your life according to any, or sort of, any sort of rules, regulations. God could care less what you do in this life with this body. Um, however you approach it. That's not true. He says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Everyone who practices, so kind of on this, uh, Daniel Atkin, or Aiken, uh, what he says dealing with this tense, the word uh, is used frequently in this section to imply a continual practice of sin as, as well as a realization of sin's completeness. In other words, it is a willful, habitual action. So this person that he's talking about is one who's running into sin. They, they don't care what God has to say. They want to do what they want, when they want, because they want to do it, regardless of what God thinks. So the antithesis of this individual is found in 1 John 2.29, which we read. The very last verse of chapter 2 says, 
you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And so there's this, there's this, this press that if you've experienced Christ, you understand who Christ is. Then there's this desire to be like him that you understand while you have this sinful nature and it's strong deep within your heart. You want to press and strive towards righteousness because he is righteous. When you stumble, you fall, you sin, you fall short within you. There is like a sorrow and an agony and a pain. Like you're just fed up with yourself. Like, and you become like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. It's like, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I keep doing those. Like, who's going to save me from this wretched body of mine? Because the pulls of it are so strong, and I'm so furious with living this way. And he's saying that if you're born of God, that you'll experience that, that, that frustration with yourself. There's a difference from not having the Spirit of God in you and just being cool with being in sin, or, or even like refusing to even acknowledge that sin is sin, that there's a problem there. He goes on to say, verse 5, you know, and for those of you that were here last week and want to know which kind of know is he talking about, is he talking about experiential or is this knowledge? This is oida, this is, this is knowledge, that you know something, that you know something explicitly true, You know that he, that's Jesus, appeared, meaning he came to earth in order to take sins away, and in him there is no sin. Jesus' purpose for manifesting himself, coming to earth, living his life when he did, his mission statement was to take away sin. 1 John 1.29, the apostle John in his gospel opens up with this verse. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him, This is John the Baptist, and what John the Baptist says about Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, Paul writes, He, the Father, made him Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus came. He was our substitute. He was without sin. The world's sin was placed upon him. He absorbed it in full, and the wrath of God was satisfied. And through him, we could have peace with God. In him, there is no sin. He is sinless. He never sinned. He had the temptation of it, but he never executed any sin in his life. And so if this was Jesus's mission, if his, his main purpose was to deal with the wrath of sin, For those that have received this forgiveness, it should really affect us as we head into sin or we struggle with sin. We don't just do things and go, oh, no big deal. Like when you understand that Jesus loves you, he died for you, he cared for you, he went through this great expense to provide peace for you with God, that when we sin, we should feel that, my Savior, how can I do that? Like, like some ownership for what we're inflicting upon him. And it should cause us to feel remorse, to lead us to repentance, to lead us to, towards restoration with him. And we do have that great verse, 1 John 1.8, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to, to, to cleanse us and to restore our righteousness. This is the God we have. But our heart shouldn't be like, I'm going to just go into sin, and I'm going to 1 John 1.8 it, it, it tomorrow morning when I'm done. 
if that's the spirit that you have, there should be some question of, are you saved? Like, we don't handle this precious gift in that way. He continues, verse 6, no one who abides in him, this theme of abiding in Jesus. Uh, throughout this, this word of abiding, like, what is abiding in a practical sense? Um, you know, I, I referenced the Padres game, and I'll probably continue to do so for as long as it works out for us. <laughs> but like looking at the stadium, like looking at the images, like I'm not there with my boys for a couple reasons. Like the primary reason is the cost is uh, like, it's like, oh man, it's like the park in the park, the $5 tickets, the, the best for the last series, it was like $250. I don't even want to know what this next series is going to be. So there's the cost. That's like, let's just be pragmatic. That's like why, that's, a, that's the main hindrance. But then there's a second hindrance of like, do I want to be with my two little boys through those crowds and like dealing with them? But like when I do go to the Padres game on a normal during the day game, when the stadium's about three quarters filled, it's like, boys, you hold my hands. I've sharpied on them. I'm like, keep your eyes on me. Don't leave me. Don't, don't let go. Stay with me. When I see anyone who abides with him, this, this individual, Jesus is saying, hold my hand, stay with me. It's a dangerous place out there. And we're holding onto his hand. We hold his hand. How do we hold his hand? We hold our, That's a great question. Thanks for asking. We hold, we hold his hand through like praying, through reading the scriptures, through being in fellowship with one another, uh, surrounding ourselves with individuals that help us to stay on track with him, to stay close with him, people that love you enough to confront you when you're wandering. That's true, love. When you wander and a friend says, hey, Gunner, I've been noticing that you're getting angry a lot. And I've been meaning to talk to you about that. Like, that's true love. It's hard to be in that position to confront somebody that you love about sin that you see in their life. Okay, verse 6. Now, the one who, the, the, no one who abides in him sins. Like, you can't be walking closely with, like, you, like, like Jesus and sin are incompatible it's like it's like magnets. Like when you have super strong magnets that are polarized, or maybe it's the other way around. I'm not a scientist guy, but like the, the way when they won't go together. There's the other way when they attract to each other, but the way when they're polarized, like Jesus and sin, you cannot like get them to touch. So if you're in sin in that moment, you're not in fellowship with him and you're not abiding with him. And so you can't say he's trying to He's trying to confront the teaching that they're saying that you can be in sin and in fellowship with the Father. And John is saying, no one who abides in him sins. This continual action of sin. I would even suggest that in that like moment of sin, when you, uh, your temper blows and you have like what we call in our family an anger volcano, like in that moment, like you're, you're not in fellowship with God. But then there's 1 John 1.8 for those of us who are believers in Christ. We, we have our anger volcano and we realize what we did. We make right what we've done wrong. We apologize to the individual. We confess to God and God restores us. I don't know why he operates like that. He's super great. He's way more gracious than I am. I'm way more cutthroat. I want to be Italian. You're dead to me. You're cut off. No, you're wrong. Like, that's like... He goes on to say, like, no one who sins has seen him. No one who sins has seen him or... Or knows him. Uh, so a couple of commentaries on this. The New American Commentary says this. Although numerous suggestions have been offered, and none is completely satisfying, the most reasonable still seems to center on John's use 
of the present tense verb. He is not suggesting that the child of God will not commit a single act of sin. Instead, John is describing a way of life, a character, a prevailing lifestyle. Here, in the, pre- here the present tense verb contextually depicts linear, continual action. In other words, the believer will not have a life characterized by sin. Swindoll continues. John is writing about the unsaved person who has no intention of confessing sins because they are, are devoted to the world and its carnal pleasures. And then we come to verse 7. So far, John is just teaching truth. He's just saying the facts. Then we come to verse 7, and he's going to give us some application. Like, so what's the purpose? Like, okay, what are you trying to convey to us, John? And we come to verse 7, and we get the very first, like, instruction to us and how to apply this in our lives. Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. So remember, they lived in a world where people were trying to tell them that sin is okay. You can be good with God. You can continue with your life. God doesn't care about this. If God didn't care about our sin, then why in the world did Jesus have to come and give us life? And so he's saying, don't be deceived. Um, like we, we live in, in, an, in an era where the world is even using Bible verses out of context in a wrong way and there are many within the, the church, I'm using that word very generously, that are saying, yeah, 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 it's okay. God doesn't care if you kill a baby in the womb. God doesn't care if you're sleeping around. God doesn't care if you're, you're totally wasted on Friday, Saturday night doing whatever. God doesn't care if you're disobedient with parents. I'm trying to get some of the more gentle ones, like disobedient. God doesn't care if you're angry. God doesn't care if the ones that we like dismiss. Like the Bible is very clear that God like has a pretty like firm and clear stance against sin. God is also firm and clear that he loves us so much that he would send his only son to come to this earth to live a perfect life and to go be that sacrifice to be our substitute, to stand in our place and bear the consequence that we deserve. And so what John is saying here is make sure that no one deceives you. Make sure that you understand what God thinks and what God says because the world out there is going to try to steer you away. When I look at the temptation of Christ, when I look at Adam and Eve, when I look all through the Bible at how Satan tempts people with like the lure to reel them away, which apparently the guys that went fishing on Monday, they had very terrible luck, <laughs> not to throw a little zinger. Um, but he's very successful in steering us off track. And, and the Bible often shows that what Satan does is he misquotes God. And so we live in a day like where you can't always trust. Just because somebody's using a Bible verse doesn't mean that they're actually using it correctly. It requires that you actually know your Bible. It, it requires that you find yourself in, in, a, in a church, in a place where the Bible is taught faithfully and correctly so that when you're confronted with a counterfeit, you can spot it right away. When you're confronted with something that is other than the grace of the gospel, 
you can recognize it. And you go, that's not true. He doesn't want us to be deceived. Make sure that no one deceives you. And then again, he repeats this issue that's at hand over and over and over again. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. It doesn't get any clearer. There's the old sheet of music, sin. Hopefully you're not living by that, that, that old song sheet. If your life is, is on that old song sheet, the message to you is that Jesus died for you. He loves you. He wants nothing more than to give you this new sheet of music, which says you can be set free. You've been ransomed by the blood of Christ. He has something new and better for you. For those of us who have accepted this gift, hopefully we have this new sheet of music and we're going to have to break free from the habits of the old song sheet. We're going to have to learn the new, whatever they do in songs, like chords and choruses and stuff and thingamajiggers and like all of that stuff. Like we have to learn that stuff. It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. But over the course of your lives, as the spirit of God is within you and as he convicts you of your sin, as he leads you on your way, as he purifies you, as he changes the way you think over the course of years, you'll see that you're becoming more like Christ. And he changes us. Verse 9, no one who is born of God practices sin. This, is, this doesn't say that you're sinless. This isn't saying that you can achieve in this lifetime the perfect life free of sin. This is the idea that you no longer have to be enslaved and ensnared to sin. And if you have experienced uh, the freedom of being released from the trap, you know exactly what I'm saying. That doesn't mean that you're sinless, um, but it's tough. Like it's very hard to like explain this in a, in a real way, but if you've experienced this truth in your life, you know exactly what I'm saying. No one who is born of God, practices, continues in their sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. So he sort of puts in two camps. There are those that are in Christ and are born of God. They're children of God. They are heirs. And there are those who are children of the devil. There's no like in-between there are these two camps. And he's saying that it's obvious to, to make the, 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 the distinction. Anyone who does not practice righteousness, this new sheet of music is not of God, nor is the one that does not love his brother. So now he puts an even harder one over here. Like, okay, like righteousness, that's kind of like vague. Like, I, hey, John, can you help me understand what that means? Like, what does it mean to live a righteous life? Like, how do I do this? Because you and I both know that, like, I still have these, like, I might have the Spirit of God within me, but I still have my flesh in me, and these two roommates that don't like each other, it's very hard for me to, like, I'm, like, really good at making excuses and justifying myself. Like, what exactly does living righteously look like? And then he goes on to this, like, uh, nor the one who does not love his brother. Like, okay, you want it practical? Like, what does it look to live righteously? 
love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Like within the household of God, righteousness, the first teaching point that he develops here is that we love one another. This is exactly what John or Jesus said uh, in John 13, 34, and 35 at his last supper. He says, a new commandment that I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. And John's going to expand on this. So as we like get into next week, I'm not going to really go all the way as I go through this. Like next week, he's going to expand on this. And so according to John, there's a distinction that if you want to see uh, who the children of God are or who the children of Satan are, you can look at them and you can see a, a, a category that there are those who live their lives that are marked by uh, sinfulness. This doesn't mean that there's not even like highlights in, in their lives. That doesn't mean that like, but that they're on the path of destruction. And then there are those who live their lives righteously, that their aim is to live in a way that's honoring to God. That doesn't mean that they're perfect. There's also there are people who are, their lives are marked by hatred. And then there are those who are, their lives are made that demonstrate love. And I would go on to say that like, even in that, we're not perfect, but our aim is to love one another. Okay, so what do we do with this passage? Before I, we'll, we'll expand that next week. This passage is really difficult because at the very end of it, if you like care, like what does God think? Then it's like for lack of like asking any better question, this and the, the where this this section leads us. It should lead us to like the edge of the cliff where we're asking ourselves, who's my daddy? Am I a child of God or am I a child of Satan? And this can be a really like struggle. There can be great frustration. Like early in my Christian life, I don't know how far along I was, like somewhere between 1996 and 2000, like that for like a four-year window. Like I'm pretty sure, looking back, I was a Christian by 1996. I'm not sure that I was living out my faith until like around 2000, but I, I like, I was, I was struggling because I was, I was trying to lead two lives. I thought I could do both. I was living according to a lie or I just didn't have the tools in order to, to go down that road. And, you know, I, my life dealing with this front sort of came to a head um, like over a baseball game. I'm not trying to, like, I'm not trying to, like, press this point. Um, but, like, yesterday I got a text from my buddy that I haven't heard from in a long time from the SEAL team. So he's like, hey, Gustav. That was my nickname. Hey, Gustav, you're Padres. They're going to do it. And I was like, hey, man, I'm like, I hate to break this to you, but I'm rooting against your Braves because I don't want to face them. And uh, he's from Atlanta. And, and I had become a Christian, and my buddy had not, like he was not or is not, and, but he was like my kryptonite. And so I'd been going to church. I'd been like, like was really growing in my faith. And then I found myself coming back from a trip, and then I saw my buddy. Then next thing you know it, we're like at the watering hole for the SEAL teams, and then I'm like wasted. And then we look up on the TV and we see that the Padres are playing the Braves in Atlanta. And somehow it was pre 9-11. So somehow we found our way onto a plane to Atlanta 
to catch the next couple of days. And by the time I got to Atlanta for these baseball games, the party continued, but I kind of had stopped by that point. I woke up in Atlanta just feeling so like disgusted with myself. Like I was doing so good. And all of a sudden, like everything came tumbling down. And so I got through the weekend. It was terrible. The Padres lost the two games after. Then I'm on this plane with my buddy who's continuing the party. I'm like, just like, I wanting to get home on Sunday night so I can go to church and deal with my, like, my sin. And it was horrible because the group behind us, there were like 20 people behind us. It was a church group going on a missions trip. And it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that wasn't a laugh of compassion. That was like a laugh of like, so they're talking and like, and then of the group, the pastor's right behind us and he's talking to the girl and the girl's like sharing her story. And my buddy's getting so furious. And, you know, save, save myself the, the whole flight. That was the longest five-hour flight back from Atlanta. But we get out of the plane, and my buddy looks at me, and he's like, listen, if I hear that guy say Jesus one more time, I'm going to go punch him in his face. And I'm like, dude, what is wrong with you? Like, and then he looked at me, and he said the words that, like, pierced my heart. It was like a knife to my back, and he said, I believe in God just like you, but this whole Jesus thing has gone too far. And I walked away from there just like utterly like broken before God. Like, and it's like, God, I like, I like, I want to believe everything that's in here. But then I look at this and it's garbage. And I don't like, how do I bring this to that? And I felt like so crushed and so broken over my sin. And I thought there was like no hope ever to like, to break out. because I knew what the Bible said. Like, there is not security for our salvation when we're walking in the flesh. Like, I truly think I was broken in that moment. Like, I think I was a Christian in that moment. Like, and I do, like, I do think that, uh, like, looking back, whatever, 20-some-odd years, I do think I was saved in that moment. I do think I had the Spirit of God within me. But there was no assurance for my salvation in that moment. There was brokenness, and there was, like, I remember surrendering, but not in the way that you think, like, oh, here's my life, Lord, take it, use it. Like, I'm done with this. It was like, I'm done. I can't go on saying I'm a Christian when I live the way I do. I don't have the ability to live like a Christian, so I'm done. And if what you're saying in this book is true, then you're going to have to do something. And then it was like within like four months, I was in Bible college. How'd that happen? Like, how did that happen? Like a joke... (laughs) So I'm pretty convinced that God's answer for me to stay straight in my walk is to make sure I was teaching the Bible every single week because it requires study. And I think passages like that we see today, they're such a huge blessing to us because it really, they they force us. The, The Bible has a way to like, expose light on us and to show us our sin. And then we're forced to deal with like, do I really have Jesus? Am I walking with him? And if you are, I think what it does is it leads you to repentance and getting right with God and letting him do his work to, to, to move you along in the path. And if you don't have Jesus, then it, like, it forces you to a place where you're, you're dealing with the root issue. 
Because if you're not a Christian and you're walking around thinking that you're okay with God, that's a, that's a very dangerous place to be because I actually believe what the Bible says, that there's like, there is a heaven and a hell and our default position is for destruction and hell, not because that's what God wants it, but that's because of what sin has done. And so these passages that sort of shake us and expose like who we are deep within and shine that flashlight into the darkness and you can see all of the dust and the dirt of the sin of our hearts like it forces us to turn to God and to really take an honest examination of ourselves. We are all sinners. Some of us are saved sinners and some of us are unsaved sinners. God wants us to be the saved sinners, to recognize that Jesus came, lived, died for us, to make that payment for us that we would receive him, that we would be transformed into something new, And the devil wants nothing more than to confuse us, to deceive us, to to shake the assurance of your salvation if you're a Christian or to assure you of a salvation that you don't have. And again, like our only hope is in Christ. That's the only place that we can find peace and security and hope. And so as we look upon Jesus, as the passage Said previously, we see his righteousness. Our desire is to become righteous and to purify ourselves because he is pure and holy and righteous. I think of the Apostle Paul, like on Thursday night Bible study, we we read Philippians chapter 1, verses 27. And it says, conduct yourself in a worthy manner of the gospel of Christ, which is a super huge, like high standard that we can't meet. But our aim, if we've received the gospel, if we know Jesus, our Savior, our aim is like, Lord, I want to live my life in a way that is worthy of what you've done for me. We will, of course, fall short. But the desire for those of us who have been born again is to, like, press on. So, Father, we do thank you. We thank you, Lord for this challenging passage. We thank you that you so often rattle the tree. You hold a high standard for righteousness. That on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says that if you want to be righteous, you have to exceed the Pharisees and the scribes and their righteousness, which was unattainable. And he says, you have to go beyond that. And we recognize that we are not able to go beyond that. There's nothing that we can do. And so when we're confronted with these truths, what, we're, what happens is we're, we're forced to our knees in brokenness and, and desperation. And we thank you that on our knees before the cross, we can rest assure that Jesus died for us, that his death on the cross was sufficient, that it was once and for all, and that through him, there is this path that leads to eternal life that we experience at that moment of belief. And so, Father, I do pray for those that are here or that are listening that don't know you. 
that you would help them to connect the dots in their spiritual journey to be able to believe and to receive Christ as Savior. And Father, for those of us who have received you as Savior, I pray, Father, that you would help us to abide with you, to hold your hand, to stay close to you, to not wander in the midst of a dangerous world, that we would learn the notes and that we would figure out how to have our lives play this new song of righteousness, this, this idea that is so foreign and so opposed to like who we are in our flesh. And so, Father, we do long for that day when we can be with you face to face and we can be freed from these bodies, these desires that are so opposed to you. Lord, help us to walk with you faithfully all the days of our life. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen.